You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. When you post hunting photos on Instagram, they get censored. When you post on Go Wild, you get virtual fist bumps from fellow hunters. When you buy gear on Amazon, you gas up a billionaire spaceship. When you buy gear on Go Wild, we donate to a camp that teaches kids to hunt, fish, and shoot. See the difference? Go Wild is a free social community built by hunters for hunters. Join today at DownloadGoWild.com, and I'll give you 10 bucks just for setting up your account. And you'll keep unlocking Go Wild rewards as you share content, because guess what? We like hunting pictures. Join at DownloadGoWild.com or in the App Store. The Houndsman XP Podcast is fueled by Joy Dog Food. Joy Dog Food has a rich tradition of supporting the Houndsman of America. Founded in 1945, Joy is proud of its history and the relationship it has built with the American Houndsman. And in 76 years, there's never been a recall. Made with 100% American-made high-quality ingredients, Joy Dog Food has one of the highest calorie-dense formulas on the market. For 76 years, this made-in-America product has kept hunting dogs in the field day after day, season after season. And when we say made-in-America, Joy has a long track record of fighting for American freedoms by being on the front lines against the animal rights movement and their extremist tactics. Joy will fuel your hounds and fight for your freedoms, fueled by Joy. is the Houndsman XP Podcast. Good dog, get that bear. Get that bear in here. The original podcast for the complete houndsman. The podcast that represents our lifestyle of extreme performance. Get up there! Get him! Get him! Yeah! Good boy! Good boy, Ranger! Uniting houndsmen across the globe from east to west, north to south. You know, if you're going to catch a cat or a lion, you know, you have to have teamwork. We take you to the wildest places on earth. Yeah, so how many days how many days a week do you spend out As much as I can to be honest with you. Anytime that I get, I'm I'm out there. Join us for every heart pounding adventure on Houndsman XP. 
I'll tell you like I tell everyone else. I'm going to hunt whether you're here or not, so you might as well be here. (laughs) On this episode of the Houndsman XP podcast, we are bringing you part three of Don't Shoot My Dog. Don't shop on Facebook for legal advice. We're bringing it to you right here on the Houndsman XP podcast. And in this third episode, I am bringing you a prosecuting attorney who went on to be the assistant chief deputy attorney general for the state of Indiana. He's now in private practice. Aaron Negengard is who I'm talking about. And I sit down with him and he is going to give you step-by-step legal procedure on how the legal system works. It has been my experience as a professional law enforcement officer that the most frustrating part of the criminal justice procedure is the uncertainty of knowing what is actually going on. Aaron is going to walk us through step by step and tell us what is actually going on with a criminal case from cradle to grave. After this three-part series, there should be no misunderstanding that justice is available should you go through something like this. Another benefit is when you hear of this happening, you are going to know someone that this is going to happen to. If you've been in hounds and hunting very long, you will know somebody. You can give them a resource to draw on. Houndsman XP is available. I'm more than happy to talk to houndsmen that go through this and assist in any way that I can. And that's why we do this podcast. This isn't an entertainment piece. This is a piece that is going to help you be successful in one of the most trying times you will ever experience as a houndsman. Folks, we're going to get with it. The old South Dog Box is rocking. We've got a good episode for you. Let's get the tailgate down. It's time to dump the box. Southern Hound Hunting Magazine is the most comprehensive magazine that represents your lifestyle as a houndsman. If you can hunt it with a hound, it is being covered in the pages of Southern Hound Hunting Magazine. You also get an in-depth look at the men and women who are engaged in this lifestyle, living it every day to the fullest. From the Rocky Mountains to the Southern Swamps and across the ocean with articles about our international houndsmen and what they're chasing across the pond. Go to southernhoundhunting.com, get your subscription for $15 a year. Southern Hound Hunting Magazine, promoting the fair chase experience. The recording's rolling, so we can just kind of fade into it, but we are in... uh, This is the southeast side of Indianapolis, and I'm sitting down with my longtime friend and uh uh aaron negengard aaron you and i have a history together as far as yeah our professional paths you were my prosecutor yeah for a long time how many years were you the prosecutor in dearborn county so i was uh in the prosecutor's office um since 1997 and um i became the prosecutor in 2006 and i left in 2017 to go to the attorney general's office yeah, and you were up in the Attorney General's office for the state of Indiana until... For four years, and then uh, end of December of last year, I started my own private practice. Yeah, so you've been on both sides. What what kind of practice are you doing now? 
Well, I do criminal defense and family law, and then I also do some civil litigation. I've taken some interesting cases. I'm pretty much just like your normal small-town attorney. If someone's got a legal problem, I try to help them through it if I can or direct them in a direction of someone who can help them. So you're, you're to sum up your, your career, you spent the... F- did you go to the prosecutor's office right out of law no, school? No, I was uh, I was in private practice for a little bit, and actually in '97 I was part time with the prosecutor's office. Um, shared uh, one position came open, so it was split into two. The other person you recall is Tony Sabo, and then um, we were part time for a while, and then we eventually became full time. When I was in part time, I I still had a private practice. Um, but obviously not in the criminal defense world. So I did, you know, divorce and bankruptcy. I was a school board attorney for a year. I was a, or a couple of years. I was a county attorney for a year. I was on county council for a period of time. And, and then in 2000, well, I became the prosecutor in 2006 by appointment from the caucus because, um, Sally McLaughlin, who left to become judge at Dearborn Superior Court Two, and she was appointed by Mitch Daniels for that position. Um, she was appointed for a year, then ran that same year, and I was appointed for a year and ran that same year, and then I was elected. Um, and then I, I never had an opponent, so I was elected three times and uh, became, when uh, Curtis Hill became was elected attorney general, um, I went to be his chief deputy for his term of four years. I felt really important when you got that job, just so you know. <laughs> I had a link to the attorney general. There you go. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, we, we worked through a lot of different cases. Yeah. Dearborn County is a is a pretty busy place, and you it established is. a pretty uh, pretty good reputation down there as a prosecutor and things like that. So <clears throat> I'll tell you um, – one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on the podcast was to talk about, yeah, you, I remember it was cool for me to see the prosecutor of my County, the, where I work most of the time, you know, bring his kids to the Hoosier tree dog Alliance youth hunts at yeah. Crosley and, and get involved in hunting like that. And it was an unusual thing for me because I'd never had a prosecutor that I really thought gave a crap about, about what we did other than other than making sure our paperwork was right and <laughs> how you could pre-trial the uh pre-trial things off the court docket but right. uh yeah well my kids were you know i i grew up um you know my grandpa was a big hunter and my dad tried to do it but he was too busy and so he and i never got to experience that very much so i wanted to make sure my kids had the opportunity um to hunt if they wanted and so we we did all kinds of different types of hunting, um, squirrel hunting with tree, with tree dogs. I mean, was, um, was a blast. I mean, it's, you just can't beat that. And I mean, we were out there, I think on that particular hunt, it was like below zero. It was cold. (laughs) Holy smoke. We thought about canceling that one. (laughs) It was really cold, but we had a blast. I mean, you get moving, you're not as cold. And that's the fun thing about, that that kind of hunting and then of course you know we'd went i'd went deer hunting a few times and take took the kids my youngest 
was not much of the deer hunter. He couldn't sit still in the stand very well. Right. But he kind of enjoyed it. And, and um, But my oldest, he, he could sit in the stand for hours without, without uh, getting bored or anything like that. So he was a bit more successful at it. And, you know, it was just something we did as a family and had a lot of fun with it. Well, I think um, having that exposure is so is so valuable for you to be able to talk about this topic uh you see you've you've got to interact with with uh the hunting public especially with tree dogs and houndsmen to see what kind of passion and uh between me and david snyder and jacob jump and you know some of those guys in lawrenceburg police department you know how passionate we are about that and then you got to go out and experience that with us and and see that it made you take i was really appreciative of you you getting involved at that level yeah well it was a lot of fun and and jacob has since taken um me and the boys out for uh, rabbit hunting and and that's a lot of fun too. Yeah. Now I'm not a very good shot, as as I'm sure they would have tell you. If yeah, Jacob got... already told me. Yeah. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> well, I'm sure he will <laughs> if he hasn't. But uh, but you know it's fun. We had a, we had a great time um, rabbit hunting. Of course, rabbit's pretty good. So. Yeah. Yeah. It makes a good stew. Well, we are going to talk about um, dog shootings. Yeah. Hunting, particularly hunting dogs and and the. My goal for the for this portion of the podcast is to um, help people who incur this type of incident, this type of tragedy in their hunting life, how they can do things to stack the odd in their favors to make sure that they get good, successful prosecution for these crimes and also recoup civil damages in uh, uh, civil court. And... Um, Let's just start. We're going to talk mainly about Indiana mm-hmm. because that's what we're both really familiar with. But I know other states in the country have got um, very specific laws to deal with with um, you know criminal loss. But in Indiana, um, if a person has a dog that is shot, and we can just start with generally dogs being shot. Um, let's talk about that a little bit. Okay, so. It is illegal to shoot a dog. Um, it's certainly one that's not your property. So the, there's a couple different. There's shooting a vertebrate animal that they could be prosecuted under. It's also um, destruction of someone's property, so it could be criminal mischief, um, and it could be depending on you know most hunting dogs are pretty valuable, so it can hit the threshold to make it a felony. Um, so those are the, the options here in Indiana that I, you know, I would imagine are similar across the country. And, and so the, those questions all, of course, all depend on the facts, right? And, um, that's, that's where those cases are decided is how, you know, first and foremost, it's the investigation and does the investigation show the facts? I mean, as a prosecutor, I was always concerned with what the evidence showed, right? I mean, people get can get caught up in following an emotional side, and that's not your role as the prosecutor. Your, your role as the prosecutor is to look at the f- evidence and what does the evidence tell us about the facts. And do those facts support 
a criminal charge. And as a prosecutor, I always wanted proof beyond a reasonable doubt because that's ultimately the standard. Can it be less to file a charge? Yes, but are you really doing your job as a prosecutor if you're filing a charge you know you don't have the evidence beyond a reasonable doubt? And so I always felt since that was the standard, we, we lived by that standard. And, I mean, we were very effective still in, in pursuing prosecutions. Now, I never had an instance um, specific to to this type of case, but um, that's what does go on and. and you know, as prosecutors look at cases. Criminal law is criminal law. The threshold right. for, you know, proving proving beyond a reasonable doubt is the same whether it's somebody breaking into your house or somebody stealing your stealing your gun out of your truck or somebody shooting your hunting dog. That's is that correct. accurate? Yeah, it's it's all the same standard. So, you know, you can file a charge based on if you have probable cause which is not a very high standard. Um, but sometimes those charges will get filed, but as a prosecutor, what I'm looking for is, is there what does the evidence tell us? What does it show? And is that evidence beyond, show beyond a reasonable doubt that a crime was committed? And if the answer to all those questions is yes, we file the charge and then we pursue it um, to try to get the best result. And obviously... The, I mean, there are cases that aren't um, perfect. No case is ever perfect. There's always issues with cases. Um, so you're not looking for perfection. But does the evidence tell the story that there's proof here beyond a reasonable doubt that the person is guilty? And if the, if the answer to that is yes, then we can pursue it. If And then sometimes you, when you're negotiating a result, you have to consider the victim's you have to consider, um, we always try to make a point to talk to the victims about a plea. In fact, it's required under Indiana law to do that, um, to check with the victims. So we would check with the victims, make sure they were okay with any, if we were going to have a, a resolution by an agreement, make sure the restitution was accounted for and, and those types of issues. Well, let's let's clarify here. So, when you talk about a resolution, you're talking about a plea bargain. Yes. And what's the goal of a? Describe for our listeners what the purpose is of that plea bargain, because I think a lot of times it gets thrown around and bannered around, even in the media. That that plea bargains are, you know, I'm sure they'll reach a plea bargain in this thing. Right. They won't even get a conviction. So, explain the value and and the and the detractors from reaching a plea bargain so and and what i i always call it a plea agreement because it's not necessarily a bargain and i i can tell you i probably <laughs> good point i probably prosecuted a number of people who weren't at all happy with the plea agreement and didn't consider it a bargain so the question is you want to try to resolve things by agreement because when you don't there's a lot of costs associated with it a jury trial, even a small, even on a lower level offense, is expensive. You got the jurors have to be paid, people have to be brought in. They're, you know, they have to be fed during this period of time. Most juries don't result in um, hotel stays, though. That's right. that's like you know big, bigger, high-profile cases where they can't have to be protected from the media. Um, circus and you know I had a lot of cases but we never had one where we had to do that mm -hmm. but um, 
that said, you know, it's still expensive. You have your deputies, you have a lot of costs associated with it, and it's a, it's a very time-consuming. It takes up a huge chunk of time, so you can't afford... It would bankrupt the system if every case were tried. Mm-hmm. Um, so you look for a reasonable resolution. Now, again, depending on the strength of the case, the resolution could be not in anything at all that the defendant wants. I mean, because the defendant has to weigh, if they go to trial and push it, they could get the max. Mm-hmm. And the max... Um, could be a problem for them, right? I mean, why do they want to risk going to jail if they wouldn't otherwise be going to jail? Do they want to risk, you know, they have to consider a lot of risks too. And I can even tell you on the other side, the prosecutors, they have a lot of leeway. I mean, I've had cases that I've actually wanted to go to trial, but my client has said, no, they'll take the offer because they don't want the risk. Mm -hmm. So, both parties have to consider the risk and the cost. I mean, the, the prosecutor has to take into account the cost. Um, and and so you have to come to an agreement because it just wouldn't function any other way. But for the most part, what the parties do is work out a resolution that's somewhere close to probably what would have happened had you gone to trial, mm-hmm. right? Because the defense attorney is looking, okay, what's the judge likely to do? The prosecutor is looking, what's the judge likely to do? And you try to reach something that we can all agree. Um, And the benefit to the state generally is that there's an agreement. But sometimes it is you're just pleading to the court and your client's throwing himself on the mercy of the court. But it is a mitigating factor if you take responsibility, just like anything. I mean, the courts are always going to consider if you did mess up, if you take responsibility, they're going to look at that as a mitigating factor. Mm-hmm. And so when people take responsibility for their actions and own up to their mistakes, certainly that's a mitigating factor that needs to be taken into consideration. And so many cases, that's what people do even after talking to an attorney because it's going to benefit them to do that. And and so that's why most cases end up in a resolution. Now, oftentimes, bigger cases don't, like murders aren't going to get resolved because there's no happy ending certainly death penalty there's no middle ground there right um you know a person's not going to agree to go (laughs) be executed um although i i think mcveigh tried to um but that that said i think it's important to understand that the plea agreement system is something that's vital to keeping our criminal justice system working and it's not really bargains. I mean, look, sometimes there's the cases don't work out and defense gets a pretty good deal. Oftentimes, it's the other way around. Right. And so um, I would say it's a system that works pretty well. And and so it's not like the prosecutor looks at a case. And, and I, I'll just talk, talk through it like this. Okay, I, I'm the one that responds as the officer. Mm-hmm. Like I was, I would go out to the scene and investigate I would put all my findings in a report, turn that report into you, and then uh, we'll talk about that process in a second. Uh, but but then you have to evaluate you have to evaluate the merit of that case based on my report and things like that. And at some point, the the plea agreement is isn't simply a way for you to say, hey, there isn't enough here for a prosecution, so we're going to plea this one out. 
Right. No, and in, in fact... Because you have no leverage. If they're in a case, they're in a the case, right? Right. So if there isn't a case, we're not going to file it. Right. That, I mean, that's where we assess the case. Now, look, there's some cases that are better than others, even if they meet the threshold, right? I mean, mm -hmm. if you got a full confession and you got video of the crime, I mean, you know, depending on what the circumstances are, um, that puts you in a, a superior negotiating position sure because the case is really really strong so even even when you meet the threshold of beyond a reasonable doubt there's still levels relative levels where you still have really strong cases and maybe not so strong cases mm -hmm. um but that doesn't mean you don't pursue it if you know if you have a good faith belief that there's sufficient evidence to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the person committed the offense a lot of those are sometimes on um when you have a single witness who saw something, but you find the witness credible, and the jurors have to believe that witness. Mm -hmm. Well, as a prosecutor, if I believe that witness, then I believe there's an evidence beyond a reasonable doubt. But that doesn't mean that with a single witness without much physical evidence that I have a strong case. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's a lot of, lot of prosecutors have a lot of discretion, and, you know, they have to make those decisions on a daily basis about what to pursue and what not to pursue. And, and sometimes those decisions are tough. And, the, and sometimes the toughest decisions are when not to file a criminal charge. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, you, something very bad could be happening, but you choose not to file because you don't have enough evidence. Um, you know, I think we've seen in cases at a national level where prosecutors, you know, do the politically expedient decision and, and, that doesn't always work out because they did the political expedient decision and no one should have been prosecuted um, because there wasn't enough evidence. But they did it, you know, because they wanted to, to look like they were on top of it. And so, you know, and I'm glad when that doesn't work out for the prosecutor who made the political expedient decision instead of the right decision. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a lot that goes into it. And then... <laughs> And then also you considering the nature and circumstances of the crime, right? Right. And so some crimes are obviously worse than others. So you try to um, determine, like a lot of conservation-type issues we did a pretrial diversion for, like not hunt, hunting without a license as an example. Well, it's not fair to every hunter who's paying those fees to hunt. I mean, I know I paid the fees. Right. <laughs> so when yeah. someone wasn't hunting with without a license, but is it something that they need the criminal conviction for, right? If they have a financial consequence that's higher than what would have been had they, and they have no other criminal history, right? Then that's something that would sure. be appropriate for a diversion. Now, if they do it every year and every year they're getting caught, then we have to look at a different resolution. The point is to, to change that behavior, right? So that they don't do it again. And that's the point with all of it. But as you get to, like, murder and child molesting, you're not so concerned about whether they change their behavior and whether they stay in in prison and, and pay the price for that those levels of crime. So, it, you know, you have a wide spectrum from speeding tickets to murder that you have to decide what the appropriate penalty is. Briar Creek Kennels is your complete hound hunting outfitter boots, lights, collars, and tracking equipment, dog boxes, kennel supplies, collars, clothes, squalors, 
Woo! They have it all. Briar Creek Kennel is a garment and dog trade dealer. Owner Chris Girth will ensure Briar Creek Kennel customers will get top of the industry customer service. Whether you purchase from their website or you find them at a major coonhound event, Chris and his staff will share expert knowledge and experience about every product they offer. Chris Girth is a top competitor and breeder of hounds. He knows what gear you need to be successful. Look for Briar Creek Kennels on the web for a complete online store or look at their fully stocked trailer at any major coonhound event. Briar Creek Kennels, offering a hound hunting public generations of excellence. Check out Dogs Are Treed at dogsartreed.com. Leashes, tie-outs, medical kits, paws are protected, and dogs are hydrated, cutting-edge, high-quality gear for you, the houndsman. Gear designed for houndsmen by houndsmen with the highest level of craftsmanship available. Dogs Are Treed is also the exclusive dealer for Houndsman XP Podcast logo wear. We're working on our line over there, but we just dropped some new hats at Dogs Are Treed, and you can see them on our page at dogsartreed.com. And don't forget at checkout, enter the code HXP 20% off, all capital letters, and you will get 20% off of your entire order. Find them today at dogsartreed at dogsartreed.com. I think there's a lot of uh, misunderstanding about there out there about you know like the levels of crimes when you take and I'm gonna be showing my age but when I started it was A through D felony so you take something that's a, a D felony that means something to me as an officer and that makes means something to you as a prosecutor whereas you know murder was an A felony you know the dog shooting deal in the state of Indiana is if a person kills a vertebrate animal belonging to another person without that person's consent, it's a level six felony. Bang. There it is. Okay. Now with the defenses behind that are if it's, uh, uh, showing a risk to personal safety, destroying your property, you know, those sorts of things. So, just saying that, well, it's a felony to shoot a, shoot a dog doesn't mean it's a felony of the same level as, you know, selling crack cocaine to, to school kids right. on school grounds. It's, it, right. it can't be. And, and when we, and I, I'm very attached to my hounds and my dogs and stuff like that. But for me to think that that crime of shooting my dog rises to that level, um, uh, is unrealistic for right. me or for me to have that expectation that it should be that important to our society and to the prosecutor's office. Right. And, and I would say, but one of the things I would encourage your listeners, if they've ever experienced this thing, or if they ever have the unfortunate circumstance where this does happen to them, is that they do communicate with the prosecutor's office. Good point. That's where I wanted to go. Um, because look, now, I understood as a prosecutor that a minor offense, so-called, was not um, as significant 
to the big picture as, say, a murder case, right? Mm-hmm. But by the same token, a minor offense, and some of those level six felonies are class D felonies. You and I are both old. Remember the class <laughs> D felony? I've been, you know, back in it for a little while and finally getting used to saying level six felony. But the the f- first level of felony, right, the, the, the lowest level felony, a class D or a level six felony, but a lot of those are very serious crimes, mm-hmm. and and if they rise to that level, it should be taken seriously, in the sense that, you know, we I wanted to have my office make certain we were attentive to the victim, and attentive to, because that case is very important to it's them. It's the biggest thing going on in their life. Right to them, it's very important. Yes. and so I wanted our office's response to that to reflect that, to reflect that we understood and appreciate and not get blown off as, hey, this is nothing. Because, exactly. Because at the end of the day, we're public servants and we're there to serve the public and they're a victim of a crime and they deserve to have, be heard as to the significance because it generally is the most important thing, even if it's a level six felony or a class D felony. Yes, uh, you know, and so it was important that we dealt with that. And I I had, even as prosecutor, some cases where I was involved in the level six felony, even taking it to trial, because it was the, the facts were so egregious that I wanted to make certain it got that level of attention. So I think it's important that in this situation, one of the things is most, I mean, a lot of prosecutors in Indiana may, but many prosecutors don't have any experience, don't understand the hunting world or the value of a hunting dog or the amount of work that goes into training a hunting dog and and what that loss means, right? They're just like, okay, what is it I got in front of me? So it's important, as we were talking about communication, it's important that that person who's the victim that you get with whichever prosecutor or the victim advocate who's ever responsible for communicating with the victim in that office, that you communicate with them by phone, by email, whatever's necessary, whatever's allowed, so that that office understands how important this is to the person, to you, the the victim. Because if you don't communicate that, they'll make the assumption that if I'm not hearing from anybody on this, then it must not be that big a deal. Right. Right. And while I said what I said a minute ago about it, there are other things that aren't as important as that to our culture, it is the biggest thing going on. If if one of my dogs gets shot, that's the biggest thing going on. And um, we don't, that person, that type of person does not want to feel like that their value is any less than any sure. other victim out there. Exactly. And so, so let's talk about, <clears throat> let's talk about, um, that communication a little bit mm-hmm. because a lot of people don't understand all the different working parts of what's going on there. You mentioned a victim, victim's advocate. advocate. advocate yeah. So what is their job in the prosecutor's office? So now, it, look, obviously it varies, right? I mean, in Indiana, right, the prosecutor's office is very in size from very small to very large, mm-hmm. right? If you look at Switzerland County Prosecutor's Office, um, which is, you know, in our old stomping grounds, right, versus right. the Marion County Prosecutor's Office, right? I mean, there's just 
two entirely different worlds, right? A lot of worlds, difference right? between Vivi and downtown Indy. Yeah, and, and the population's different. But, you know, so you got basically two prosecutors, and so, you know, your chief deputy's handling the, <laughs> the you know, the minor consumptions that came in that weekend versus, you know, that's not being handled by the chief deputy of Marion County. Right. Just, and then those are, like, opposite sides of the spectrum, and you have everything in between. Mm-hmm. So the communication is going to vary depending on what type of office you're, you know, how large the office is you're communicating with. And, I mean, what you need to understand, but every office has a victim advocate. And if it's a larger office, they should have more than one victim advocate. And that's the person who's responsible for communicating because under Indiana law, and a lot of states have these requirements, it's actually under the Indiana Constitution we're required to advise victims of the hearings and keep them posted as to what's going on in their case. And so it's a constitutional obligation in Indiana for the prosecutor's office to notify the victim of what's going on. And sometimes it happens really well. Sometimes stuff falls through the cracks. And so what we're talking about is how do we make certain that this, what can the victim do to make certain that this is handled appropriately by the prosecutor's office and doesn't fall through the cracks of a bureaucracy, which all prosecutor's offices are. So the victim advocate serves a role as they're supposed to be the one in communication with the victim. They send out the initial letters. They get the feedback. So, you know, all prosecutor's offices should be sending a letter out that says, okay, this is this case. You're the victim in this case. Please send us your information. Mm -hmm. Now, if you know that that person's been arrested and had a hearing, it is okay for you to initiate that conversation with the prosecutor. You don't have to wait to get your form. And you can contact the prosecutor's office, and I would follow up. I think it's important to follow up everything with an email, and that just confirms. I mean, if you just have a phone call and someone talked to you and they didn't document it. Yes. Yeah, so I always think it's appropriate. The phone call's fine, and in fact... A good thing because you want to have a working relationship with the person but by the same token you need an email as a paper trail in the old days you just send letters but in this case you just send an email oh i appreciate talking today here's what we you know and you can politely say what you discussed and stuff so if there's ever a question down the road you can you know you could sit with someone superior and say Here's my email on such and such date, such and such date, such and such date. And and that helps. And look, the squeaky wheel does get the oil. You don't want to be overly squeaky because it may, you know, well, I don't want to talk to that person again. <laughs> but you want to be um, persistent enough so that they understand how important it is. So because they're not going to have any clue. I mean, most deputies are not going to have any clue how important it is that someone's hunting dog got shot. And and they need to know. And that the best way to do that is if you could schedule a meeting, an in-person meeting, it's harder with COVID, or at least a Zoom call, something to where they can actually see you interact with them, preferably with the deputy who's in charge of handling the case, because mm-hmm. that's, that's the person who's actually going to be making the decision. That can't always happen. Um, and doesn't always happen, and that all depends on how the prosecutor's office handles those things. So at least with the victim advocate, 
because at a minimum the victim advocate's going to be communicating with the prosecutor who's handling the case. And and so that prosecutor is going to take into account what the victim advocate's telling mm-hmm. him or her. And I will tell you, look, one of the most important things for for prosecutors handling the cases is not to have upset victims. We don't want a victim coming in at the sentencing hearing and telling the judge, I'm not in favor of this plea. Now, there, because the victim has a right to do that in Indiana. Now, <clears throat> that said, there are times where people are unreasonable unreal- and unrealistic. Um, now, as, as the prosecutor, I always wanted to make certain if we were going to be in that situation that we've sat down with the person and explained that to them exactly what's wrong with the case. What's, and I never had those conversations really go bad. I, I, I would have, even after I had those conversations, people might express a little, you know, still might go into the court and say their piece. And that's fine. At the end of the day, the judge is probably going to defer to the prosecutor if the prosecutor shows that they were diligent on this issue and there's a reason for the plea. Now, if a prosecutor, that said, I, I know, you know, pleas do get rejected when a prosecutor, you know, contact with the victim has been poor. Yeah. So, so today's day and age, uh, you talk about that phone call. You, you get a phone call from the victim's advocate and I'm on my cell phone, mm-hmm. and I'm out hunting. Right. I haven't got anything to document with right. at that point. You know, I don't – unless you're really on it, <laughs> right. you know, carrying a notebook and a pen with you, you're not going to be able to document that. So you say anytime you have a case like this and then you get contacted by the office, you should ask for uh, uh, an email address to follow up mm-hmm. to, to come back and say, hey – do, I, do you have an email address that we might be able to communicate on? And and it's just simply an email back saying, thanks for your call today. I appreciate you taking time to talk to me, even though they're obligated to do it. Uh, it's called greasing the, greasing the wheels here a mm-hmm. little bit. But it's my understanding that this is what we covered today. We You told me this, 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 and this. Is that accurate? Yes. And, I mean, if if you are in a place driving or whatever where you can't, and this conversation takes place and it's going to be followed up later, you you can always just say, um, you know, if it's a few hours later, get the email address. And you, you can always call back and get the email address when you're at a place where you can write. Right. Or you can, if you have the email address, a lot of times it's on the website anyway, you can shoot an email and say, you know, thank you for your time. You know, I was uh, driving at the time, didn't really understand. What What do you need from me? Sure. And and again, and it's okay to take that opportunity in the email again to express, you know, the value the dog has. Because that's... I was going to ask you about that. Yeah. How do we come up with a, a realistic value for that loss? So what you aren't going to get is like so what you get in so restitution in indiana and in most places deals with more a direct out-of-pocket loss Mm -hmm. okay so a a lawsuit might be a little different a civil lawsuit you might get a little bit more you can argue about other things but actually so the the value is the fair market value of that animal animal. okay 
Because, look, I mean, obviously dogs have a, a personal, um, emotional attachment, but that doesn't get, it doesn't get taken into account when a veterinarian commits malpractice generally, and it mm -hmm. doesn't really get um, taken into account. At the end of the day, from a legal perspective, a dog is, a, is, is a, an animal is a piece of property mm -hmm. and that piece of property has a fair market value okay if so it's an exceptional dog and would sell on the market for x then it's x okay so this would be a typical thing all right i i i'm out coon hunting with my hound uh it ends up getting shot at that point you know i've got a i've got a hound here and this is just examples say he's earned ten thousand dollars in uh, lifetime earnings in competition hunting. Uh, it's a f male dog. That'll be the easy one. And his stud fee is $500. Mm -hmm. And what sort of things can I bring together to help you as help us establish a value for that hound? So is there a market? I mean, is there, you know, like with, cars right you can determine the market for cars putting the relevant information in on cars and it gives you the approximate price <laughs> this isn't nada so we don't have any blue book <laughs> you don't have a blue book i mean is there anything like that though i mean are dogs are are dogs with those types of uh, credentials sold on the open market or do people generally hold on to those dogs? both it so can be either it, way you know the f now look in a civil case, you might be able to get lost earnings and, you know, lost earnings from mm -hmm. competition. You might be able to get that in a civil case. So there, in a civil case, it might be, you know, because you, you can attribute a specific number to that. Mm -hmm. But restitution is more, legal restitution is more limited than that. It's limited to an out-of-pocket loss. So it would be limited to from the criminal perspective, your restitution that you'd be entitled to would be limited to what that dog would go on the market. And that can be a range. Now, that doesn't mean you you undersell that to the prosecutor, right? I mean, you put all those facts in because the prosecutor's going to get kicked back from the defense attorney. What do you mean that i got to pay X amount? Of, you know, I, I, I looked online and I can get that dog for X, right? Right. And and so you're going to have those debates. So the more information the prosecutor has, the better. And one, you're dealing with a negotiation of a criminal resolution, so you, they may tend to pay a little bit more, you know, to, to satisfy and get it done. So that it doesn't have a so that your shooter right. doesn't have a ve to felony avoid a felony, as an example. You know, and he's losing several other liberties that are well. If he gets a felony that. conviction, he's not going to be able to hunt. Right. So at least for a period of time. So that obviously is of some value. So you do have the ability, you know, as long as it's a good faith, it doesn't mean you get to like pump up the value of your dog more than the value of the dog. But mm -hmm. um, so you, the more information you give the prosecutor with regard to that, the better. And also, I think it's important that the prosecutor understand the emotional attachment hunters have to their dog i think that's a and, big and uh, that's just so that they understand how important it is it's not just a money thing although money is certainly a key component sure but it's not just a financial loss when a dog is shot there's an emotional plus you know a lot of people were actually hold on i mean some people 
train dogs to sell them up, but some people, sure, it's the you know they're not giving that dog up, right? Right, that's their and the 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 situation that I can think of that playing more of a a role in is like when when my teenage daughter, uh, when she was a teenager, would hunt with me a lot. You know, if it would have been one of my dogs that that would have been shot like that, that would be a lot different for me to pursue that case than if it was my daughter's dog, because she looked at that dog in a completely different way than, than maybe I did or I do. And so now I'm dealing not only with the loss of this hound, but I'm also dealing with the emotional loss that my daughter is, is experiencing at that time. So, uh, I always say, you know, you said loss of hunting, but what kind of human being would shoot another kid's dog? You know, right? I mean, come on. Well, and I think that that goes into consideration. I mean, look, the prosecutor's office is certainly going to consider um, all those factors. And by the way, they're going to consider it because the judge, if it were just like an open sentence, the judge would consider all mm-hmm. those factors. And it may be that the, the, you know, the facts are particularly egregious. Um, you know, there's really, you know, whatever thought went into it, the person was just callous and just shot this animal without thinking twice about it. And then, and that this animal happened to be, you know, a kid's dog that has, um, you know, all those factors. So it's important to communicate all that. And now look, not necessarily in the sit down conversation, if it, if you can't get to all of it. But that's why it's important that it all be communicated in the email. Okay, so so boiling this thing down, and, and we'll just, I might be a little facetious in some of this, but um, if a person goes through a, a, an incident like this, should they be on Facebook scrubbing pictures of their kids with their dog? Should they be gathering information on uh, fair market value for, and it, it varies. So say I've got a two-year-old or a three, a two-year-old hound that has already won X amount of dollars and I project him of winning this much more. Um, I've also bred three or four females, so he's proven himself in the breeding pen. And what all should I be putting together in this package for you? So all of that stuff, or should I? Well, if you have an idea what the fair market value is, that would be a good place to start. We're still talking criminal. We're not talking civil. That would be a good place to start. And then, yeah, that information would be, okay, so here's, here's the fair market value. Here's how I arrived at the fair market value. Here's other facts should be taken in in consideration Mm -hmm. and what it's, what the animals earned you know, how much projected lifetimes earn, you know, you could put all of that in. It doesn't mean the prosecutor's going to sit there and, but it, it gives a, and say, okay, I'm going to give 10,000 more than the fair market value. What it means is when the prosecutor says, look, I need X because that's what we've calculated as the mm-hmm. fair market value. And, you know, talk, he, he or she should talk to the victim to determine to come to an agreement is well what do you think you know you're entitled to and oh it's, it's priceless aaron it's yeah. pri- you can't and if you tell them that then they're, you're going to get less because the prosecutor it's not priceless i mean it i mean emotionally it might be but that's that can't ever be paid so you got to come up with an actual figure yeah. and you have to come up with a figure that's in good faith 
defensible. Mm-hmm. And, and that's defensible by facts, right? Here's how much that dog would go on the market. Now, here's how much that dog would go on the market, presumably takes in lifetime earnings and all that stuff. But if it seems high, then those facts help solidify its value, mm-hmm. right? Versus a dog that hadn't earned anything yet and hadn't been a stud fee, right? Right. But it still costs something to purchase that dog. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, depending on how far along it is in training, its value would be increased. So, you know, that dog has a fair market value, and then you do your best to try to determine it, and then you fill in those facts to support that. And if the prosecutor has that when he's meeting with defense counsel, or he she's meeting with defense counsel defense counsel can have those facts when they're when their client says oh there ain't no way that dog's worth that much right well well this is the information i got what do you think you know what do you think it's worth and mm-hmm. then you know maybe we negotiate that but um but the more information i mean information is key the more information the prosecutor has about the case, the more better resolution the prosecutor can achieve. Because if the prosecutor doesn't know any of that stuff and is calling you the day before the plea hearing with, well, what what do you think the value is? You're not likely to get as high a value as if you had given the prosecutor all the information. Okay, so taking into consideration that that uh, you're probably, I think it's safe to say you're probably not familiar with what the actual accurate value of, of these hounds can be. Right. Um, if I told you that my hound was worth $50,000, what would your, as a prosecutor, you're the prosecutor, you're looking at this case. My conversation with you is this hound is worth $50,000. Would you think that would be high? Well, without knowing anything, I would think that would be high. Okay, yeah, and and this is just this is just speaking general terms, and I think this is what we are up against as a hound hunting community, a hunting hunting segment here, is that people don't realize that how high, how high they are. Now, you, when you were stating factors like um, stud fees and, and lifetime earnings, that I mean, I could see how it could get to be that high. The, the hounds, a lot of hounds, and this is, I'm not challenging you here, Aaron. I'm just saying this is what we're up against. If you if you talk about thoroughbred racehorses, mm-hmm. you know, I think that's a widely understood concept sure. that these horses are very valuable. But $50,000 in today's market is not uncommon. Right. And that's a shocker to to just the general public. I mean, you run that by a judge, you run it by a jury. Most people are going to be sitting back going, holy smokes, I didn't realize a dog could be worth that right. much. And so one of the issues you're going to have when you get into numbers that high for restitution is inability to get that much money. Because, I mean, in reality, a lot of people don't have that kind of money where they can write a check for $50,000, right? That's a good point. Let's go into that. So so now you've gotten into a number that's kind of unrealistic for many people. Not all, right? I mean, you could could be some guy who's got plenty of money and shot the dog and can write a check without blinking. 
but that's the guy that worries me because he's not going to feel any remorse <laughs> he's either. Not feel any remorse, yeah, but like, at least you get your fifty over. grand, right? Yeah. But, but in most cases, you're going to get somebody who's not in a financial ability to get that, and that's why you know it's like auto accidents. That's why you have insurance because mm-hmm. the insurance is there, and I, you know I'm sure there's not anything like that available in this world, but. Because most people can't afford to pay the damages. That's mm-hmm. why, if you're smart, you got a high under underinsured and uninsured claim. Because if you wreck into the person who's only got twenty five grand, you want to make sure you, there's enough money there to take care of your damages. Should you have the unfortunate of you know serious injuries or whatever resulting right. from an auto accident. So, <clears throat> with that said. There's a pocket there that can take care of that expense, but if we didn't have, which is why there are requirements, if we didn't have insurance and didn't have most of the cases, we wouldn't be able to get the money mm-hmm. because the the judgment wouldn't be worth the paper it's printed on. Right. Because you still got to enforce a judgment, and that's kind of in the civil thing. So if uh, as a prosecutor I'm demanding fifty thousand um, dollars, then I can't. I'm not. It's unlikely that I'm going to be able to get that. So we could. You can get an order over a period of time for a, a certain amount. Um, and Where they're but, basically making payments on their making judgment. Making payments. But it's unlikely, you know, on a, it's unlikely you're going to be able to get a full recovery of 50 grand. So, but you want to be able to support that. You, if, it's, if that's what you're talking about that high a number and if that's not uncommon you would you wouldn't really need to sit down and and prove that out to the prosecutor because the prosecutor's got to understand where that's coming from i can just imagine i can imagine how that conversation would go you know if i was not familiar with the the in-depth knowledge that i have with hounds if if somebody walked in and said yeah that that hound's worth fifty thousand dollars i'd be like Bullshit, you know. Right. No, yeah, oh, come on. You're trying to over-sensationalize this thing because you want your pound of flesh, and so now you've got the greatest dog that ever lived, and, and you want to take next year off of work and, and right. you know, whatever it is. But the, the thing of it is uh, uh, they're actually worth that much money. And, and so this is as much about having this discussion is as much about preparing hunters to uh, – keep track of things like that and to have do a little bit bit of pre-planning because every time you turn that hound loose you could be encountering a loss on that so you need to know what those numbers are you need to think about it now so you know if it's fifty thousand dollars one of the things i'd want to see is people paying fifty thousand dollars for that dog not just this is an other examples yeah so so here's a dog you know just almost like a house right yeah, you, you know, can comparables, yep. right? So you can do comps on real estate and, all day long, right? So here's here's dogs of this, and this is what they pay, right? And then again, I think lifetime earnings and stud fees are a very good indicator, easy, you know, hard mm-hmm. math statistics sure. that support that quantify into a. a, a monetary value right mm-hmm. lifetime you know if if a dog's two years old and's earned ten thousand dollars it's understandable that it could earn a lot more yeah right yep. and if you're already getting you know five hundred dollar stud fees for your dog at two years old and i don't know what the uh 
performance range is for um, dogs, but then you you have a comparable where you can point. Look, um, it's a five-year generally top performance level, so that's you know fifty thousand dollars here. That's then, and then you figure out present value. I mean, you get someone who really knows statistics; they yeah. can actually figure that out for you. But but that would support. So when the when you go in and you say the dogs were fifty thousand dollars, and you go in and they go what? And they say, <laughs> well, here's this dog, this dog, this dog, and this is what I've earned, and this is what I'm getting on stud fees. That obviously supports that, right? Versus the dog you just bought, <coughs> you know, the puppy right. that you just bought for that you got high hopes for. Right. He's going to be be the best one ever. I know and, he and is. And you don't get to make that argument, right? right? I mean, it, maybe it would have been the best one ever, but we don't know that yet, yeah. right? I mean, right. it's got to have proven itself to be worth that level mm-hmm. of money. But if you can make the case and the prosecutor has the information to support that, I mean, I would think the prosecutor would say, no, this is, you know, this is what we're dealing with and, and try to get at least a judgment and some sort of requirement to pay on that. Right. So you can get the pay, you know, cause you do have the ability to get a, a judgment that would attach to any of that person's property through the restitution a lot of times we would reduce restitution orders down to a judgment. And then as a condition of probation, they would be required to make payments towards it. And and getting rid of the felony would be one way to get the money. Yeah. Um, so I think at the end of the day, you know, people just want to be, they just want to be treated with, res- with, with respect. And absolutely. Like, like they, they, uh, they want what is fair and equitable. Um, while your initial response may be you'd like to see the guy the the case be a capital capital punishment case that's probably not realistic so you right. have to be realistic and and a big part of it on the cases that I have been involved with on this is it is highly emotional sure. it is I've, I've been on I've been in a situation where uh, we were squirrel hunting and uh, there was a another person on the property that ended up shooting this dog and it and at that time it wasn't my dog um the owner of that dog was extremely emotional sure i mean they were fired up and at the time i was working uh, as a conservation officer then then it was i felt like it was my job i had to be the peacemaker here you go here and you take care of your dog and you get him to a vet i will deal with this situation i get it it's going to be an emotional type thing but the person who takes time now and has the information like you've given them today and they can start we never want to hope you never have to use it but if you can prepare in advance for this type of thing then it doesn't rock your world quite so bad right and and you you do need to have the data to back it up you can't go in and say i think right he made me ten thousand you know you you need to be able to point to the tournaments and the actual money you've received for stud fees you know because you got to have the data but if you have data like that then it supports a very large um, financial value to the dog clearly one of the things that we've got going in our favor is organizations like uh pkc you know, they keep track of lifetime earnings. And then you have organizations like the United Kennel Club that keeps historical uh, reproduction records 
for a particular dog. So th- th- that's why we have to be uh, – that's our resources to draw on. And then, sure. of course, we know other people that have paid so much money for a, a comparable, like you brought up, comps, comparable hounds and stuff like that. Well, we, I want to touch real quick. We kind of we kind of took a long time there on the criminal side. Sure. Um, real quick on civil. Tell, me, tell us what's different about civil law versus criminal law. So first is the, the standard of proof is – um, by a preponderance of the evidence, which is 51%. So mm-hmm. if we're putting a, a number, and I don't like to do that on beyond a reasonable doubt, but let's say beyond a reasonable doubt is 90% or higher, um, you know, preponderance is 51%. So the standard is much lower. More than likely he did it. Right. Yeah. And um, and then because it's a crime under criminal mischief, you could be entitled to attorney's fees, and you could be entitled up to triple damages so um you you need to look at that to be certain but that would be you know civil crimes generally are entitled to attorney's fees and treble damages you would want to review that and talk to an attorney about it the downside is a lot of attorneys aren't going to take that on a contingent fee for the reasons we discussed is well i can sue someone and get a million dollar judgment but if they ain't worth a million dollars, then uh, that's not going to do me a whole lot of good. Right. So they're probably not going to do a contingent fee on it because contingent fee means there's a likelihood that I get paid. And so I get because I could get nothing, you don't have to pay anything up front, but you got to take the risk. Mm-hmm. If, the, if the attorney's taking the risk, they can charge a higher percentage, but that presumes there's a pot at the end of the rainbow that – I would otherwise get unless things go really bad. Yeah. Um, so in all likelihood, I'm going to say I need some money. I need right? a retainer. I need a retainer, and that gets really expensive really fast, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, my hourly rate, which is probably low for Marion County, is like $300 an hour. Wow. And that's we not, need to get this cut off pretty quick. <laughs> and that's not... <laughs> And that's not high for this area. I mean, you know, attorneys at larger firms are, you know, a thousand dollars an hour or more. So, well, and I say that just so people understand how expensive it is and how expensive it adds. It can add right. up really quick. And and so even at two fifty, it doesn't. You know, at four or five hours in, you're into a thousand dollars. So that's that's kind of the prohibitive issue. There is. Either the person has a $50,000 dog that they're willing to write a check for $10,000 to pursue a lawsuit, but then what if the person has no assets, right, or not substantial enough assets to pay the $10,000 that you eventually get? A $50,000 judgment that you paid $10,000 for, and maybe you get the attorney's fees, so maybe you're owed sixty. but if the person doesn't have $60,000, mm-hmm. then you, you have a piece of paper you can frame saying you got you justice. Yeah. But it's a participation what? certificate for <laughs> yeah. a civil case. Yeah, so I mean those are the downsides. Now look, sometimes you could run into someone with a deep pockets, right? Mm-hmm. And and then that would certainly be worth pursuing, but in most cases <clears throat> um you're not going to run into the person with the deep pockets. So the criminal remedy is really your only remedy. Yeah. Um 
But, you know, if they have a large piece of property, if they were hunting on their property and it's a large piece of property, it might be worth pursuing something mm -hmm. um, to get some sort of judgment. And you could even go, if it's not a $50,000 dog and it's a three or four or up to $8,000 dog, you could go to small claims court. You mm -hmm. don't have to pay an attorney anything. And you could just sue in small claims court and get a judgment and attach this to his property and or her property, and then you can... Um, you know, at some point, hopefully get paid on that. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, I think this has been helpful, and I'm sure there's a lot more information, but uh, we want to start it out right here. It's the season for it. It seems sure. like um, a lot more people are out, going to be out hunting and uh, things like that. I thought we'd close out the podcast with uh, – uh, we'll play a little drinking game here. I'll <laughs> tell uh, any any – any attorney joke that I start that you can't finish, then you have to drink. And any game warden <laughs> joke that you start that I can't finish, then I have to drink. See, I don't know any game warden jokes. Oh, you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. But you, you go ahead and give me the attorney <laughs> joke, and I'll tell you. The, I'll see if I know the ending. We'll, we'll say. You, you serious? Yeah, go ahead. Do you know why? I don't know if I can tell that one on the air. Um we better do this all fair. <laughs> well, I'll end with this attorney joke. All right. So there was an attorney, a doctor, and a lawyer. No, a lawyer, a doctor, and a minister. And they were friends of this really wealthy, eccentric fellow. And he gave each of them a million dollars in cash and said, when I die, I want you to bury me with the money. And um, he, so he said, okay. They all said okay, and then um, a little while later, the old man dies, and he's buried in the casket. is presumably filled with, you know, everyone's there. It's filled with money, just mm -hmm. as he wanted it. And um, he gets buried, and you know, they're at the wake, and the three of them are talking, and they each knew that he had done this with uh, each other. So. They're sitting there talking, and the doctor says, you know, hey, um, says to the minister, did you really put all million dollars in that in the ca casket? And the minister says, well, I have to confess. You know, I kept 200000 for the soup kitchen, but I did put in, you know, the rest. And the doctor said, well, good, I, I feel better, you know, the children's wing uh, the the cancer wing needed some money for some new equipment so i put in 500,000 for that but i put in 500,000 uh, cash in the in the casket and so then they asked the lawyer did you put all of the money in and the lawyer said absolutely i wrote him a check <laughs> So anyway, we'll leave it at that. <laughs> All right, Aaron. Hey, thanks a lot, man. I appreciate you taking your time and, and uh, helping us out on this. And uh, can't thank you enough. All right. It's, it's always been, been a it's pleasure. It's been fun. Yeah. It's been great. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Bye.